Nuclear Hot Seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a trio of interviews. Alice Slater of Nuclear Age Peace Foundation tells us about her experiences at the United Nations Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, winding up this week in New York after a month of meetings. Dave Kraft of NEIS in Chicago fills us in on Exelon's push to get a $1.2 billion bailout from the bankrupt state of Illinois for five financially unsustainable reactors. And Jules Cook of UCY.TV tells us about an exciting new video database on mainstream media coverage of Fukushima starting on March 11 of 2011. That's right, going back to the earliest reports. Those interviews, plus our ever-popular Numbnuts of the Week, activist shout-outs, the Daily Show Twitter campaign, and more nuclear information than is wise to bring up at a family dinner, all of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 19, 2015, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. The big happy dance news this week is that 85-year-old sister Megan Rice, 66-year-old Michael Wally, and 59-year-old Greg Vortia Obed have been released from prison. Ta-da! They were ordered released after the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati last week overturned the 2013 sabotage convictions of the three for their peaceful, though deeply embarrassing to the United States government, protest of nuclear weapons at the Y-12 facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. They still will need to be resentenced on their remaining conviction for injuring government property, ow, ow, the wall said as they hit it with hammers. But it is believed by all rational people that they will be released with time served, which is over two years for all three of them. Nuclear Hot Seat is working on a special about this case, which we hope to have up for you next week. In Oregon, anti-nuclear groups want federal regulators to keep the region's sole nuclear power plant shut down until repairs are made to a cracked pipe that feeds cooling water to the reactor. Ha! The nerve of some activists. The Columbia Generating Station in Richland, Washington, shut down a week ago for scheduled maintenance after the plant had completed a record 683-day uninterrupted run. No cheering allowed. This is not the kind of record you want at a nuclear facility. Entergy Northwest, the utility consortium that runs the reactor, contends that the cracked pipe is a minor repair that doesn't need to be done immediately. But it joins a list of growing concerns that activists have raised about the facility, which they claim is uneconomical, outdated, and isn't designed to withstand the size of earthquakes that are possible at the site. Physicians for Social Responsibility on Wednesday, May 13, petitioned the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to suspend the plant restart until the pipe had been repaired. But the NRC on Tuesday gave Energy Northwest another two years to analyze how the expected ground movements would impact structures at the plant. NRC, protecting people and the environment. Not. Alice Slater has worked for nuclear disarmament for decades through the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Alice has been attending the United Nations Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference and had this to share with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners. 
Alice Slater, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm delighted to be here. For the past three weeks, you have been attending the United Nations Conference Review on the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Since we've had it, there's been quite some proliferation going on. It was signed in 1970, and there were... uh, Five nuclear weapon states at the time, the U.S., Russia, England, China, and France, they promised to give up their nuclear weapons, and all the other countries of the world promised not to get nuclear weapons. Everybody signed except for India, Pakistan, and Israel, and they got nuclear weapons. They went ahead and got them. And also, to sweeten the pot and make people want to sign, they promised them this Faustian bargain, an inalienable right to so-called peaceful nuclear weapons. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Peaceful nuclear weapons? I should say peaceful nuclear technology. They don't say weapons. I'm saying weapons because every nuclear reactor is a potential bomb factory. That's how countries get their nuclear weapons, by building nuclear reactors and making the materials. And as a matter of fact, North Korea signed the treaty, promised not to get nuclear weapons, got the nuclear technology, walked out and made their own nuclear weapons. And we're questioning what Iran was doing with its technology. So it's a dreadful treaty. It was signed in 1970. It was supposed to expire in 25 years. So in 1995, they came back to the UN to see how they were doing. And at this point, instead of those five nuclear weapon states giving up their nuclear weapons, they had doubled the amount that they had. And a lot of uh, civil society showed up at that uh, 1995 uh, renewal conference. And we lobbied for more promises for disarmament before they would renew it. But there was a lot of pressure put on countries to renew the conference indefinitely, unconditionally, and they renewed it. And the only promises they gave were that they would have five-year reviews to make sure they were keeping up with their promises. And they also promised, in order to get the Arab states to agree, that they would hold a conference on a Middle East uh, weapons of mass destruction-free zone. I mean, Israel is the only country right now in the Middle East that has nuclear weapons, although they never admit it. And, of course, they don't belong to the treaty. So this is what happened. They came back every five years, and they adopted more promises and unequivocal commitment to the total elimination of nuclear weapons. That was in 2000. And then they promised 64 practical steps in 2010, and instead of making good on their promises, the U.S. has just announced that they're going to spend $1 trillion over the next 30 years for two new bomb factories, one they've already built in Kansas City and in Oak Ridge, and for new airplanes, missiles, and submarines, and new nuclear weapons, and this is after they gave all these promises, so there's totally a lack of good faith. So this year, again, is one of the review years, and for three weeks now, you have been attending sessions at the United Nations. Give us a sense of what has been going on there. Well, I have to back up a little, because two years ago, during the interim period, the International Red Cross, issued this incredible call saying that the humanitarian consequences of nuclear war were so awful and that there was no way that the Red Cross could provide help if such a thing were to occur. After that, Norway held a meeting where 120 some odd countries showed up and civil society and it was the first time we were like all in one room together And they issued a cry saying, this is a terrible phenomenon. We cannot have nuclear weapons. And ICANN was born, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, asking for a treaty to ban the bomb, just the way we banned chemical and biological weapons. 
and to start without the nuclear weapon states because everybody has a responsibility to get rid of nuclear weapons, not just the ones that have the bombs. And this was very unique because the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, says that those states with nuclear weapons are going to make good faith efforts to eliminate nuclear weapons, but it doesn't say they're illegal, they're prohibited, they're banned, and they've been getting away with literally murder for years. Well, certainly the threat of mass murder. Right. So anyway, we were in Mexico in the summer of 2014 after the Oslo Conference. This was a follow-up, which had occurred in 2013. And in Mexico, the Mexican government issued a statement after this conference saying there's no turning back. We're coming into the 70th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is this year, and we must work for uh, nuclear disarmament. Well, the next meeting happened the same year in December of 2014 in Austria, and now 150 or 60 states showed up, and for the first time, the U.S. and England came to the conference. They boycotted it, the first, the one in Norway and uh, Mexico. They said that wasn't appropriate and they weren't going to come and it would be a distraction from the promises they had made, but they actually showed up at this conference. And at the end of the Austrian conference, this December, the Austrian government made a pledge that we're going to fill the legal gap the nuclear disarmament, which was their code way of saying we're going to work for the ban treaty because they didn't want to totally aggravate the nuclear weapon states who can't ban this discussion. You know, they keep saying we have to go step by step and block by block and building blocks and they're just stalling and as they're stalling, they're modernizing and building new bombs, so it's totally hypocritical. To the Austrian pledge in December, we are now at this four-week non-proliferation treaty review conference, and it's quite different from all the others because the non-nuclear weapon states are being very forceful, and 91 of them have already signed the Austrian pledge to fill the legal gap. That is the language they're using to move ahead on a ban treaty. And what we expect is that after the 70th anniversary Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August 6th and 9th, it's 70 years since we dropped the bomb, that we will go to a new meeting, possibly hosted by South Africa, and at that meeting we will actually begin negotiations to ban the bomb, just like they did with landmines. You know, they went up to Canada, they called it an Ottawa process, it was outside of the UN, and they just went and they did it. And we think that would be very powerful, not so much with the U.S. and Russia, you know, the nuclear weapon states, but there's a whole group of what we're calling weasel states. They're part of the nuclear alliance. They're under the nuclear umbrella, including Japan and uh, Australia and the NATO countries that have in their documents that they rely on U.S nuclear power for their defense, bombs for their defense. So we think once we get this thing negotiated, particularly like in Japan, that the people are really going to push their governments to give up the nuclear umbrella, that if we can use it as a cudgel to weaken the nuclear alliance that the U.S. has with the NATO countries. And I'm very excited. I think this is the most promising thing I've seen. I mean, you know, at one point, we thought when we got the nuclear test ban treaty, that's great. This is the beginning of the end. But at that point, Clinton was giving the laboratories like $7 billion a year to do subcritical tests. They were blowing up plutonium in Nevada to do a laboratory development of new weapons. Nothing has stopped. The machine keeps going on, all our victories. But I think this ban will make a big difference. If listeners would want to get involved in this extremely important movement or learn more, where can they go to learn more and what are some steps that they can take? Everybody should go to the ICANN website, www.icannw.org, and they list the 91 countries that have signed the Austrian pledge. 
if your country's not on the list, write to your president or, you know, sign the ICANN website and get engaged. They're collecting countries all over the world. Like all of Latin America, they have this group, CLAT, Caribbean and Latin American uh, Committee with like 36 countries. They all sign the Austrian Pledge as a group. There are countries in Africa, many in the Middle East are signing it. Afghanistan signed the pledge. Hmm. But of course, none of the nuclear weapon states are signing it or their allies that we're calling the weasel states. If you're living... Does your program go internationally, Libby? Yes, it's it's a podcast, so it's online. And I literally have people on six continents who listen to this show every week. Well, then we need all of you. Check out ICANW.org, I-C-A-N-W.org, and look and see. Google the pledge, the Austrian pledge, and you can see if your country's on that list. And sign up for ICANN and get engaged because even now we have another week to go. We have 91 countries. I've been lobbying at the UN. We've been going to missions and getting countries to sign the pledge. There are countries that still haven't signed that should sign. And we're asking people in their capitals to write to their presidents or their foreign ministers or, and ask them to sign the pledge. It would be great coming out of uh, the NPT, which ends next. Friday, if we could say we have 100 countries. We have 91. Like when we came in, there were 70. So there's great work going on by the um, civil society there. There's a lot of good camaraderie and sticking together and working on a campaign. And I'm, I have not been so encouraged in years. I just feel so good about this. You know, it's funny, as you're talking about them taking the pledge, it reminded me of, I think it was during Prohibition, that people would take the sobriety pledge. <laughs> well, this is sobriety about nuclear weapons. They take the pledge to fill the legal gap so we can finally say they're banned, they're taboo, they're prohibited, and we can use that legal document to influence other countries, to influence the nuclear weapon states that are less amenable, you know, to this. So I think it'll be very good. Fabulous. That was Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Last week, I reported that radiation from the forest fire around Chernobyl had made its way to the west coast of the United States. Then a listener who was concerned about radiation air reports for California and San Bernardino's spike on, on May 9th contacted Michael Collins of Enviro Reporter. Now, Michael, who is highly respected, wrote that the forest fire adjacent Chernobyl made aloft radiation, but not enough of it to disperse over the west coast of the USA. Having read this, I was going to do a retraction this week, but then checked with Mimi German of Radcast and No Nukes Northwest, and she said that there was a spike in radiation from the Chernobyl forest fires that was caught in Oregon, and she's looking into that further. So no retraction at this time, but still a lot of curiosity. In Japan, an enormous spike in neurological diseases have been found since Fukushima. In the evacuation area, more than four and a half times the number of patients went in for treatment compared with the number before the disaster. New patients reported vertigo, Meniere's disease, and acute low-tone hearing loss, with numbers of patients more than seven times what they were before the Fukushima disaster began. Also increasing were the number of reported cases of heart disease and brain infarction, as well as diabetes, osteoporosis, and psychiatric illnesses. There is great concern that there will be additional health hazards with no end in sight. Particularly disturbing is that 16 more young people who lived near the Fukushima nuclear power plant have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Fukushima Prefecture has been conducting thyroid tests on about 385,000 residents and others who were 18 years old or younger at the time of the onset of the March 2011 nuclear disaster. These new cases were detected between January and March and bring the total number of young people diagnosed with the disease in the testing program to 103. 
But of course, in making this announcement, prefectural authorities bothered to state that these cases of thyroid cancer in young people were unlikely a direct result of the nuclear accident. To which Nuclear Hot Seat says, bovine theses. To give anyone still thinking of attending the 2020 radioactive uh, Tokyo Olympics, know that according to fukuleaks.org, testing conducted in February and March of 2015 found cesium in many tap water samples collected from around Japan. Tokyo had higher tap water contamination levels than Fukushima City. Radioactive material was found in a newly built condominium in Nihonmatsu, Fukushima Prefecture. The crushed stone that was used as raw material to make mixed concrete is suspected of being responsible. More of the gravel has already been used in farms and golf courses in the prefecture. No word if eco-cement, made with ashes from the incineration of the decontamination debris, was also used in making the concrete in that condominium. And in the town of Namie, near the radioactive wreckage of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, they're planting rice, and they're planning on selling it. This in an area that is still designated as an evacuation zone, and all residents of Namie have been in evacuation since March 11 of 2011. Last year, rice that was not for shipment was grown in the same patties and deemed permissible for human consumption. So the rice was cooked and served at cafeterias in government buildings in Tokyo. Epidemiological study, anyone? And if that's not crazy enough for you... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none nuts out of week. It's a compound numbnuts this week because I couldn't make up my mind. Reuters had a report last week that was headlined, Handling Radioactive Waste at Fukushima Plant Could Be Improved. Ya think? But then they added that this was according to a U.N. agency. And what do they call a U.N. agency? The International Atomic Energy Agency which it labeled a United Nations nuclear watchdog. No, it's a United Nations nuclear industry guard dog, because that's what it's there to do, to guard the nuclear industry. And what, pray tell, is the vast improvement that the IAEA is suggesting for Tokyo Electric Power Company? That they should consider discharging radioactive water contaminated by the Fukushima Daiichi reactor meltdowns directly into the Pacific Ocean intentionally. These nuclear brainiacs from the IAEA believe it is necessary to find a sustainable solution to the problems of managing contaminated water. And that includes dumping the stuff directly into the Pacific beyond what's already leaking in and has been leaking for more than four years. And yet Japan is outraged, outraged over the continuing ban on Japanese seafood exercised by China, North Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and New Zealand. Previous releases of Fukushima contamination into the Pacific have drawn protests by Japanese fishermen, environmental groups, and even the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute has declared that contamination from Fukushima has been measured off the western coasts of the United States and Canada. And it ain't going away any human span of existence soon. But wait, there's more. Remember the rice being grown in the evacuation zone near Namie? Well, it turns out TEPCO is going to remove the cover from the destroyed Fukushima reactor a cover that was never meant to and certainly did not contain the radiation. It was merely put up to prevent the radioactive dust from spreading all over the surrounding country. And they're taking it off exactly when the rice is being planted in the evacuation zone. I'm telling you, TEPCO and the IAEA, with a side order of Reuters, are this week's... 
clear hot seed, none that's out of week. As for those people who have been evacuated from their homes in Namie and elsewhere in the evacuation zone since March of 2011, the Fukushima prefectural government is going to stop providing free accommodations for them as of March of 2017. In Canada, an open letter to the government of Ontario urged the government to direct Ontario Power Generation to withdraw their nuclear waste burial proposal. The letter went to the Premier of Ontario and every member of the provincial parliament, with 100 public interest groups signing on. You can read a copy of the full document at nuclearwastewatch.net. In the U.K., the government is funding a new early warning system to stop swarms of terrorists from shutting down Britain's nuclear power plants. ISIS? No. Jellyfish. Jellyfish swarms, technically known as blooms, can block filters on pipes which suck water out of the sea to cool reactors, potentially forcing the whole plant to shut down. Jellyfish have already forced closures at Scotland's Torness power plant. Energy companies lose about £1 million each day a plant is closed. That's their profit margin, so they're just not making their profit. And still, they're going to seek to recoup their losses from consumers. Ukraine is proposing to reduce the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which is currently at 18.5 miles, in order to create a zone of reserve in which economic activity and installation of residents will be allowed. No streetlights required because everyone and everything will glow in the dark. We'll have two more interviews in just a moment. But first, interested in a good ebook? Yes, I Glow in the Dark. One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond is the story of how one woman grew up to produce a weekly podcast on nuclear issues. Yeah, it's my story and I'm sticking to it because I'm stuck with it. I think you'll enjoy the read. It's available on Amazon Kindle, and you can play it on any digital device. Give a read. Give it a five-star rating on Amazon. And let me know what you think. Dave Kraft is Director of Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS, which is based in Chicago. When I learned that Exelon in Illinois was trying to strong-arm and blackmail the bankrupt state into an enormous nuclear bailout, I knew that Dave was the person to sort it out for all of us. Dave Kraft, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Good to be here. Give us a quick update on what's going on in nuclear Illinois in your battle with Exelon. For the last year or so now, within Illinois, we have seen Exxon Corporation manipulating the legislature in an attempt to have the legislature granted $1.6 billion in bailout money for five reactors here in Illinois that Exxon claims are losing money. And they're going about this uh, in a variety of ways. Before I go too far and too deep into the Illinois situation, I, I will point this out to your listeners and, as I have done to our legislators, that what we're seeing here in Illinois is really just our version here in Illinois of a national campaign that's been going on for the last two to three years where the nuclear industry overall is out to gut renewable energy and energy efficiency everywhere. We've seen that with ALEC, you know, going after renewable portfolio standards and some states already rescinding theirs. What we have here in Illinois is merely the Exelon version of what's going on. Now, Exelon has been a large player in this national movement. They created a front group called Nuclear Matters last year, which has taken out full-page ads in the New York Times and many, many local Illinois papers touting the benefits of nuclear talking about the horror stories of what's going to happen to Illinois if they have to close these five reactors, these five money-losing reactors, and why it really is beneficial for Illinois ratepayers to pay about $300 million a year more in rates to keep those money-losers going. So last year, Exelon persuaded our House Speaker, Michael Madigan, to not fix our state renewable portfolio standard law, which had been disrupted by the aggregation movement 
there was a glitch in the law which prevented the money from being released to actually build renewable projects. And the parties had reached a tentative agreement on how to fix it when Exelon came in and spoke to Speaker Madigan, after which Speaker Madigan declared, we're not going to work on the RPS in 2014. Instead, we're going to conduct a state study done by four state agencies, which would determine the negative effects on Illinois if these five reactors close. In other words, the purpose is to find the negatives if the nukes would close, as opposed to coming from a neutral position and just finding out what the position was? Absolutely. It was a study to show, not a study to know. And we pointed that out repeatedly, both to legislators and to the agencies, which ultimately conducted the the study, uh, which came out in January of 2015. We criticized the whole process. Uh, It was a ridiculous process last year. And as you said, they had a predetermined outcome that they were supposed to look at. They were probably told what they shouldn't be looking at and what they wouldn't reveal, we pointed out. (laughs) One of the things they didn't look at is what would the negative effects on the Illinois economy be if, in bailing out five unprofitable reactors, Exelon destroys the renewable energy and energy efficiency industries in our state, which actually account for about four and a half to five times more jobs than all of the nuclear reactors put together. And we have 11 reactors here operating in Illinois, plus three that are closed. So it was a real sham that went on last year. This year, the environmental community, the business community, uh, institutions, uh, faith-based groups, introduced some legislation earlier in the year. They beat Exelon out of the blocks called the Illinois Clean Jobs Act, in which they promote the use of renewables and efficiency to attain the carbon standards that we expect the EPA will will enact in this coming year. Exelon came out with their legislation several weeks after that, calling for what they call a low-carbon portfolio standard. And this legislation suggests that nuclear plants have been undervalued because they've never been paid for the value of not putting carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, But all the other renewable sources get that benefit somehow. So their version of, of reality came out about a month after the Clean Jobs Act. So this is the current situation now. There was also a third piece of legislation introduced by an Exelon affiliate, Commonwealth Edison, which also goes after the renewable industry and the efficiency industry and keeps it under large, big-box utility control rather than decentralizing and opening up markets for uh, distributed energy, distributed grids, things like that. So that's the lay of the land legislatively. And what we're seeing here is a lot of manipulative language, a lot of really misleading characterizations going on here. Talk a little bit about the radio and TV ads that Exelon is running in Illinois. I did happen to see the TV ad recently, which uh, really goes back to uh, very effective scare tactics of about two decades ago, where uh, if we didn't have nuclear, we'd be freezing in the dark. Literally, in one of the ads, Exelon has a little old senior citizen lady in her rocking chair sitting in a room with no lights on, wrapped in a blanket. Now, what are you supposed to you know, glean from seeing that sight? <laughs> <Is that, laughs> if we don't get our bailout, your senior citizens are really going to be in trouble. You know, They're going to be freezing again. So, I mean, they're just really going down to the, the primal level on misleading advertising to, to scare the heck out of legislators. It's disinformation that they're putting forth, which is what they seem to excel in. Right. And, you know, uh, the language that's been used, too, it's nothing new, but it was criticized 20 years ago. <laughs> the Nuclear Matters ads of 2014 have language in it like reliable carbon-free and emit zero air pollution, you know, language like this, clean, reliable, affordable energy. Now, I bring these words up in particular because in 1998, our organization and 14 others, spearheaded by the Natural Resources Defense Council, lodged a formal complaint with the Better Business Bureau's National Advertising Division against the Nuclear Energy Institute, the trade group for the nuclear industry, about their ads using almost identical language here. And remarkably, the National Advertising Division uh, ruled in our favor. They said, this is misleading. You can't make statements like that without qualifying them. 
the reality does not support the message you were trying to get across. But for me, one of the most important uh, lines in this 21, 22-page document that the NAD put out was this one, and I'm quoting from the document. It is a fundamental principle of advertising law that a claim that is technically truthful can still be misleading. And if that doesn't encapsulate everything Exelon has done in its advertising messaging so far, I don't know what does. You know, as you were reading that, first of all, I was having a hard time suppressing my laughter just so that people could hear what you were saying. And the other one was, you mean they didn't bother to throw in too cheap to meter? The one from the 1950s when they were pushing Adams for peace, which was another lie. It's outrageous what they do and what they get away with. But our requirement is to get ahead of them in all of this and derail them before they can push this through to a population that does not understand the complete and the complex nature of these issues and gets our message, which is they're out of their mind. I would also have to add, it's not just the poor public that is sometimes bewildered and not able to follow what Exxon is talking about. Our experience in talking to many of the legislators who will ultimately be required to vote on this legislation is they don't have a clue either. They're following other people's leads. They don't have time to read three 200-page pieces of legislation because that's what they have to deal with in this case at a time when our Illinois budget has just totally imploded and our pensions for our state uh, agencies are, are out of control. They don't have the capacity, uh, intellectually or even, you know, in terms of will or desire, to have to go after the detail of what's here. Yet Exelon holds great sway down in our state capitol in Springfield on these issues. How soon is the vote slated to come up? The legislative session in Illinois ends on May 31st, which is a Sunday. And the word that we're hearing is that if all goes well, we have really fought Exxon to a standstill, that they will, there will probably not be a vote on any of the three pieces of legislation prior or up to that date. It might, on a long shot, come up over the summer because they're predicting a summer session. But if not, it would roll over into the fall session. The bad news is we're hearing that, again, House Speaker Madigan, who holds great sway in Springfield, states that, the parties are going to have to sit down at a table and negotiate over the three pieces of legislation uh, and work out a compromise. Well, there is no compromise room here at all. This is one of those situations where because the way Exelon has put its language compared to the Clean Jobs Act, which is totally different, there's no room for compatibility between the two. And some things in life you don't compromise on. You know, surgery comes to mind. You don't take out 60% of your appendix and, you know, let the doctor go golfing on, on Tuesday to you know, come back for the other 40. It doesn't work that way. And this legislation, I think, is a good example of the kind of thing where it's not going to work to try and negotiate something out. So we are taking the position of no pasaran. <laughs> There's just no opportunity here for negotiation. It's either going to have to be the Clean Jobs Act or the Exelon piece, but nothing in between. So between now and whether it's a summer session or it starts up again in fall, what might listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to support your efforts and put some pressure in the right places as regards these dastardly pieces of legislation? If it rolls over to the fall, certainly every Illinois person who is listening to your show is a ratepayer. And they need to be mercilessly on the phones, in the faces of the state legislators over the summer, saying there will be a price to pay if the Exelon piece, whether in that form or some weird negotiated form, gets passed. And the reason I say that is, uh, I mentioned earlier, Illinois is broke. The budget's in the shambles. The pensions were ruled unconstitutional. Illinois taxpayers and businesses are looking to a future that's going to have a lot of tax increases a lot of service cuts. That's that's something that's already going on now. To add on that a $1.6 billion rate hike and you get nothing back in return for that should be just so over the line and so outrageous that it's going to cost severe political points to anyone who subscribes to it. So we urge Illinois listeners, you make somewhere very miserable for your legislators and, and tell them, don't ask them, what you want in terms of the excellent piece.
We will do whatever we can to support you from afar, and please continue to keep us informed on these issues because if it works in Illinois, God knows they're going to be trying it elsewhere as well. That's right, because as I said, this is part of a national campaign. We're seeing similar things happening in New York with the Ganae plant, also owned by Exelon, and several other locations around the country with other utilities. It's part of a pattern, part of a plan. We can stop them here, and we should, because we're the biggest nuclear state in the country. That was Dave Kraft of NEIS in Chicago. I've had the opportunity numerous times in recent weeks to cover aspects of the film and mainstream media community, which is one of my favorite puddles to play in. Just a few days ago, I learned about a stupendous new video archive that's been put together by Jules Cook, the woman behind UCY.TV, which has carried Nuclear Hot Seat for over two years. As you'll hear in the course of our talk, I learned some things about this show that I didn't even know, even as I was finding out about this incredible new resource. Jules Cook, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, LeBay. Tell us first a little bit about UCY.TV that has so wonderfully been carrying Nuclear Hot Seat for the past more than two years, I believe, at this point. Yeah, I believe it is. I think you're over 203 episodes now, too, which is absolutely amazing. UCY pretty much came out of my lack of finding any type of information on mainstream news when Fukushima first happened back in March of 2011. And uh, I really wanted to find a way to uh, get the message out. We had been with another small network before this and then started our own network. And one of the things that uh, we had focused on in the very beginning was Fukushima. Uh, it's grown a lot from there. I think there's close to 30 shows on here now. Uh, we do run Nuclear Hot Seat multiple times during the week. I run you Monday through Friday now. I don't know if you know that, but... No, I just learned that in the course of getting in touch with you for this interview. Yes, uh, we run you during the day, Tuesday, Thursday, in the evening, Monday through Friday, and then your newest show every Saturday uh, afternoon. So it's great. And one thing I have to say about your show, Lede, is that there is not any other show that I've heard in alternative or in mainstream news that deals with the topics that you deal with on a weekly basis. And I really believe that if the general populace had any clue as to the things that were happening in their neighborhoods and in their country, or, you know, I mean, it's happening all over with nuclear waste, not only Fukushima, but all of these other issues we have going on, they would be horrified and would really want to do something about it. So I really think that you're doing a wonderful thing, and we need to find a way to get you out into the mainstream. John Stewart. Well, he's not around for much longer, and we can talk about that off this interview. What I want people to know about, and the reason for this interview, is that you have created a fascinating database that deals directly with the earliest days, the start of the Fukushima accident. Would you tell us what it is you have created and what led you to deciding that this was something you wanted to do? Let's back up a little bit to the Fukushima Facts website that I started back in 2011. It's fukushimafacts.com as a place to aggregate information in regards to Fukushima. And we pull a lot of feeds from different websites, different YouTube channels, uh, different shows. And one of the uh, sources that I had used was uh, Pigmine News. He's been collecting a massive archive of daily news since 2007 or 2008. And, I mean, the guy never misses a day. And he had a lot of information about Fukushima and the very first days through 2013 at least on a daily basis where information came out in the mainstream that he had put onto YouTube. And what had happened is the channels where those existed had gotten taken down at one point. So... I embarked upon a project with the uh, person that runs Pigmine to, he actually went through his entire database, took him a, a few weeks, and pulled every video he had from the very first days through the end of 2013. I know that there are videos out there through 2014 we're still working on, 
We've pushed them all back up to YouTube again. There's 284 of them in particular. And then I spent a few weeks sorting every single one by date. So we now have that embedded on FukushimaFacts.com. It's also out on PigMyNews.com. That's spelled P like Peter, I-G, M like Mary, I, N like Nancy, E, News.com is where people can find this archive. That is correct. They probably would want to go to Fukushima Facts for direct access, so that's FukushimaFacts.com. PigMyNews.com is an archive. We're probably up to 70 different playlists now, over 35,000 videos up there that we've been working on sorting. So Fukushima was the first of many, but that was something that was close to my heart. So it was a personal favor to get all those sorted and up there. I have to say that in going back, I've only been able to dabble in it, but to go back to those earliest reports and the earliest visuals where in the first day or two, Fukushima itself, the nuclear facility, was intact, but you see it completely inundated by water. That's a vision we haven't seen because we're so used to seeing the wreckage and the disaster and now the water farm that TEPCO has created to store the radioactive water, which is a whole other story. So by going back to the earliest days, it was almost like reliving how the disaster unfolded in our awareness. Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why I felt it was so important to dig these videos back up after they had been taken down from where they originally lived on YouTube was because it seems that those earliest days have gotten lost, you know, when they were telling us that everything was okay and it was no big deal. And it's frightening now when you watch them to see how horribly they lied or at least told half-truths or, you know, told the truth from what they were told, but how inaccurate it was. And as the days start to fold out, you also find out that, yes, they found radiation in milk in Vermont, and yes, they found it on the West Coast, except that ended up getting lost in all the other babble in the news. And, but those clips are out there. I mean, if there's anyone who is doubting that radiation has hit the West Coast, go back two years ago. They already told us it did. What I find so valuable about this is that there are a lot of people within our community who go over every jot and tittle, every incremental change at the Fukushima site from their webcam. And I know that by having access to these, there are compilations, there are excerpts that can be taken, there is proof available in video form based on what was out there at that time. I know you listen to each week's show because you have no choice, but <laughs> but last week I had Professor Celine Marie Pascal of American University talking about her analysis of two full years of news stories that appeared on Huffington Post, Politico.com, New York Times, and Washington Post. Every single thing that was printed about Fukushima so that she did a sociological analysis of the information and did a data breakdown that shows what we have suspected and been saying all along, which is that they rigged the numbers, they rigged the coverage, there was false framing of stories. Here you are in the following week letting me know about this archive. So it seems we have a lot of ammunition to go to the media and now say, you have failed us, here are your failings, let's do some make goods, let's cover this the way it deserves to be covered as the international disaster, ongoing disaster that it still is. Absolutely. And yes, I do listen to every one of your shows, Libby, just because I enjoy them so much. But that was a wonderful interview, and she had some amazing evidence showing how they have been downplaying it. And with these clips, and trust me, there are multiple copies of these clips hidden around with different people so we don't lose them. But with these clips, there is ammunition to be able to take anyone who has downplayed or hasn't believed what's been going on and show them how bad it has been and how much it has not been reported. 
I know you've been speaking about this uh, video contest that's being sponsored by the Physicians for Social Responsibility, and that was one of the other things that struck me. We have this massive archive of news clips that we can cut up and use for a video to get some attention. So I really wanted people to be aware of this if they hadn't seen it before. That is such a great idea. I will let the people in charge of the competition at PSR, who I interviewed two weeks ago, know about this. And I will also get the link up to the Uranium Film Festival people so that they can let filmmakers literally around the world know that we have a dedicated archive where they can easily source through the material and find clips that they need to illustrate the points that they are trying to make. Oh, that would be wonderful. That's really what this archive is about. You know, we can put it out there, but if nobody watches it, no one's going to see the proof. So that would be really wonderful. I'd appreciate that, Libby. My pleasure to do so. I really, really hope that people make use of this because it's so sad that all this proof is out there. And I started sharing these one by one out on the Fukushima Facts Facebook page when we first posted them, and people were just horrified. You know, they're like, what? They've been telling us it's in our milk? They've been telling us it's in our food since 2011? Yeah, and it all got buried. Well, we're digging it out now. Jules Cook, you're doing a great job with UCY.TV. I love the fact, I didn't even know that I was syndicated that many times in the course of a week, which is great. Send me the schedule, and I'll post that up on Nuclear Hot Seat. And... Thanks so much. We have a deep debt of gratitude to you for putting together this archive, and I can't wait to see what comes out of it. Well, thank you very much, Libby. Thank you for everything you do as well, and uh, I can't either. This will be a wonderful thing. So please keep me in the loop. You bet. Jules Cook of UCY.TV, which has an amazing array of programs on it, and a reminder that you can best access the video archive at FukushimaFact.com. Well, you heard what Jules Cook, head of UCY.TV, said about nuclear hot seat. She has not encountered anything in mainstream or even alternative media that matches us for coverage of all aspects of the nuclear issue. High praise especially considering the fact that she sees everything that's out there because people always pitch her to be part of her network. So if you agree with Jules that what we've got is something special here, help keep the show going and growing. We're asking for donations. Any amount will be welcome. No donation is too small, but to answer your question, yes, we accept big donations too. You can donate by going to nuclearhotseat.com Scroll down on the home page and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, many thanks and deepest gratitude. I'm wondering if it is still worth my time to reach out to John Stewart on the show every week, considering he's already out the door with his last show on August 6th. This is The Daily Show. But I haven't given up on being somebody's on-air nuclear pundit. So who do you think is a better target? John's successor, Trevor Noah. I like the guy, but I don't think he'll last very long. He's way too intellectual, and he's from another culture, so he doesn't instinctively know all the comedian's shortcut buttons to save a dying piece of material. I'm really drawn to John Oliver for his immigrant sense of outrage that America is not acting like, well, America. So do you know anybody who works with John Oliver? Six degrees of separation? Five, four, three, two, one? And here's the big question. What am I supposed to do with all my Yiddish shtick now that, that's hard to say, Yiddish shtick now that John Stewart is out of the picture? I hate losing a good bit. Oh, well. Activist shout-outs. Frances Crow, the 95-year-old member of the women's affinity group that helped bring down Vermont Yankee, has been honored by Smith College by receiving a Doctor of Humane Letters. Smith College Board of Trustees Chair Elizabeth Mugar Evelard, in presenting Crow with the degree, praised her for her tireless march towards peace. She went on to say, 
from counseling conscientious objectors during the Vietnam War to painting Thou Shalt Not Kill on nuclear submarine missile tubes to creating a pirate broadcast that first brought the radio show Democracy Now! to Northampton. You have proven that efforts of a few can change the course of many. Crow spent a month in federal prison for her action at a nuclear submarine base in Connecticut. She has lived a life of guts and activism, and it ain't over yet, not by a long shot. Congratulations, Francis Crow. You remain a light to us all. And you may recall on Nuclear Hot Seat number 191 that we interviewed Mary Olson from Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, about what was called atomic eggs, the special vulnerability of women, children, and fetuses to nuclear radiation. She spoke at the United Nations on May 5th on gender and nuclear weapons, and now she has published her slides from that publication. They are available at nears.org, N-I-R-S dot org, slash radiation, slash radhealth, slash radhealthhome.htm. Oh, I'm just going to put the whole thing up on the website. It'll be much easier to just click through. Here's today's final thought. Deborah Harry, lead singer from the group Blondie, spoke out during a performance of her hit song, Heart of Glass, following the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster in 1979. She said, If you're for nuclear power, it's merely a symptom of our troubled time. It is time for all Americans to take control of their own lives and stop being pushed around. The race for nuclear superiority can only end with the destruction of civilization. Way to go, Debbie Harry. So, okay, who can get to her now to get her comments post-Fukushima? Anyone? We really need celebrities to come out for our movement, because no matter how many platinum albums or Oscars or Emmys or mansions they've got, it will not make one whit of difference when they come up against nuclear radiation. So, Debbie Harry, are you listening? Sting? the artist formerly and now currently known as Prince? Anyone under 50 years old? Well, at least you guys have been listening. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 19, 2015. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, oregonlive.com, enviroreporter.com, Soma General Hospital, Tohoku University, asahi.com, fukuleaks.org, nhk.com, mvariety.com, bloomberg.com, zerohedge.com, fukushima-diary.com, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, theecologist.org, dailymail.co.uk. NuclearWasteWatch.net, Michelle-Rivasi.eu, MassLive.com, Mary Olson and Nears.org, and the lovely people at the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are all invited to join so that you can show how lovely you are, too. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV. Eh, you knew that one already. It's also available on airprogressive.com and iTunes under podcasts. Our archive is available on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, or on iTunes. And our YouTube channel carries the show under Nuclear Hot Seat videos, courtesy the unflagging support of Joni Ray. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2015 Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that I no longer have to remind you that Sister Megan Rice and her two co-activists are in jail because they are free! Hallelujah! But even so, 
We are all still in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.